0: Who do you have curiosity about, like, who you want to reach with this work?
1: Can we have a richer, more nuanced and more accurate representation of women? What's a vision that puts caregivers and the least visible among us at the center? Like, I'm sitting here trying to imagine a future that looks different. Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop
0: culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Tracy Van Slyke. And I'm
2: Bridget Antoinette Evans. Last time on Wonderland, we spoke with Christina Jimenez and Ryan Sensor, two people doing the hard work of changing the dominant narratives in our culture. Christina spoke about her struggle to build a strategy that is nimble enough to respond to these complicated times. I don't feel that we have yet gotten to the point where, in pop culture, our stories are being shared and told in ways that I think will generate a dramatic shift. How do we generate that dramatic shift? Today's guests may have an answer.
3: My name's Ai-jen Poo, and I'm an organizer, and I'm a social innovator, author, and Yogi.
1: My name is Skylar Brown, and I am a futurist, facilitator, teacher, and I work primarily in the corporate world and with movements, organizations, to help them figure out communication strategies. As
0: we've mentioned before, culture change is a long-term process. We have to identify the problem, develop a strategy, and then solve that problem. And as a result, dramatic change doesn't happen overnight, especially because we're doing all of this work with people. We're having to contend with the beautiful, messy, complex, and yes, wonderful stuff inside of people. And so, if we're going to successfully pull off culture change work, we have to slow down and really listen to what people are thinking and saying. Truth be
2: told, the social justice movement doesn't actually have a very strong habit of listening to audiences. We think we do, but actually our methodology is wholly inadequate. And other industries like advertising and marketing have a very complex way of staying deeply in tune with audiences, hearing them and adapting their strategy to the ever-changing twists and turns of human nature.
0: How can social justice movements develop that habit of deep listening? How can we access the messy space inside of people, the place where people hold ideas and assumptions that get in the way of culture change? To help
2: us dig into this, we welcome ai Poo and Skylar Brown.
0: ai Poo is the leading force behind the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a nationwide movement fighting for dignity and fairness for millions of domestic workers in the United States. She's also the co-founder of Caring Across Generations, the author of The Age of Dignity, and was awarded the MacArthur Genius Award. If anyone has a finger on the pulse on visionary movement building and culture change, it's iGen.
2: Skylar Brown is the founder and strategy director of Sightful, a creative agency And she also teaches at the Design for Social Innovation program at New York's School of Visual Arts. She has a rich background in consumer research, cultural anthropology, and trend forecasting. Bringing these two powerhouses together was a little self-interested.
0: We wanted to listen to them and to learn. And that's what we challenge you to do today.
2: We started with Aijin and asked her a deceptively simple question. What is your big vision for the future?
3: Um, Many dimensions of vision, (laughs) but I think overall, I subscribe to the Dr. Vincent Harding School of Thought. He was a civil rights leader and he says, I am a citizen of a nation that has yet to come into being. And um, so I think about the citizen of the nation that I want to be a part of Mm -hmm. is one where um, everyone has the opportunity to realize their hopeful potential to contribute to have a meaningful life and to take care of their families and one where we take care of each other um, and we see and connect to the dignity and humanity in each other.
2: Mm. Skylar mm-hmm. where does your fascination with the future come from?
1: I have always been very closely linked to the cultural currents. I sometimes think of myself as a weather vane or an antenna. I feel the culture very deeply, and I have since I was very young. So my experience of culture is embodied. I guess it's kind of in a way an extreme empathy, but there's also this foresight, which I think just happens to be um, a a result of being attuned so um, intimately with the culture. In a way, I just noticed in my 20s that I was getting information or getting information about the culture before other people. And as I started to work in the world of marketing, until about 2006 when I feel there was a major shift it became impossible to predict the future in sort of a linear way anymore. And um, and at that time, it became clear to me that I wasn't really predicting the future. I was just helping people create one of the potential futures that was already in existence. And so um, with that realization, I felt very responsible. I, f- I was standing in a place and had the influence to help some of these companies actually create A future, a better future. That's really what I'm doing anymore is helping movements, individuals, organizations figure out what they want the future to be and how to get there and inspire them to see it, have that vision.
3: Mm. Mm -hmm. That's great. I have this uh, friend who founded the Freelancers Union her mm. name is Sarah Horowitz mm. she often says the future is now it's just unevenly distributed mm-hmm. i've often talked about domestic workers as the ultimate futurists in some ways because they've been living in this reality that like when i first started working with domestic workers in the 90s their experience felt like it was kind of in the in the shadows and the margins of the economy Um, No job security, no training, lack of access to benefits, kind of an invisibility and um, atomization of the work, like you're really isolated. Um, Those conditions increasingly define so much of the economy. And a lot of the women who do the work are immigrant women um, women who are primary income earners, who are both working in the workforce and caring for families of their own—they're really kind of on the front lines of so much change that's happening in our in our world, whether it's demographic or economic or cultural—and yet their stories are so um, so under the radar of our culture and our cultural imagination and. The idea that we need them at the forefront of solutions and that they actually need to be protagonists Mm -hmm. in a story about the future of the country um, is something that feels really important, not just for domestic workers, but for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, If we can figure out a future where they're fully human, have dignity at work, and um, are able to take care of themselves and their families and do their work with pride. I mean, it feels like that would open up so much for so many people. Mm. And if we have a kind of culture where the images and the stories that we're consuming and that we're experiencing and that we're touching through our popular culture mm. are ones that are like if we're able to democratize the story such that those women are visible to us and protagonists um, it feels like it could be the kind of future i know i want for my kids so that's, that's so sort beautiful.
1: of beautiful i have to say as i hear you talk i feel like this is part of what we're up against right. at the moment that's right and it's changing it is but we really have to make this change where right. women are um, portrayed you know and not just dove ads you know, or Eileen Fisher, (laughs) they're doing a great job. But like, can we have a richer, more nuanced and more accurate representation of women at all ages, from all cultures, in the popular culture? I think things have changed a little bit where we're moving from a top-down messaging model where the messages were mostly created by a few people, and then broadcast out into the culture. We still have that it's very strong, but we also have bottom up, you know, our grassroots communication. We have social change. We have people marching in the streets. Um, we have the internet. So I don't know if you've done any work to try to get, to change the story. I mean, it sounds like you, you have. I'd love to know what you've done and what, what has worked or.
3: Mm. Storytelling has always been a really big part of what we do. It's almost the fundamental building block of organizing is sharing our stories and seeing how they're connected. And um, at a certain point, we realized that we could be forever talking to ourselves. It might not ever impact the dominant story about who we are or who we're becoming as a country. Um, And that's where I happened to get introduced to Bridget, um, actually when the film The Help um, came out. And Bridget actually worked with us to design a strategy around the film to leverage the film as a moment when there was a little bit more space in the public imagination for the stories of domestic workers and to try to break that open and insert the real stories of the millions who do this work today.
2: You know, with regard to um, domestics in this country now and then, I think Dr. King said it best, all labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance, and I thank you for um, recognizing that with our film.
3: And since then, we've actually opened it up even wider to be a story about the future of caregiving Mm. and of families and how we're going to take care of each other in the kind of most unequal economy of generations? What's a vision that puts caregivers and the least visible among us at the center?
1: I have to say, I feel like as I listen to you, it has to be acknowledged the ambivalence that we have culturally here. Like on some level, there will be a moment in the future when we look back and we will not be able to believe how little we valued the care of our elderly especially or how we make concessions in the care of our children in order to join the rat race, succeed Mm -hmm. with quotation marks around it or, you know, with compassion like try to make it, you know, like really just try to make ends meet or feel that I have as a mother no other options but to put my child in daycare or have a nanny, or otherwise find a way for someone else to take care of her while I go out and make the paycheck that we need to put food on the table. I see the problem, and I want to solve it, because we we have a problem-solution kind of mindset. I don't want to
2: miss something that you said, Skylar, which is that you put forth um, this idea that there's this step in between. understanding the problem and coming up with solutions or activating around solutions that is about this kind of deeper reckoning with, with trauma around whatever the issues may be, whether it's care or climate or whatever. And I feel like that's an important thing to sort of hang in the air, particularly in the context of social change where there is this real mandate to have solutions well before you understand fully what the problem is. And so I'm wondering if we can dig in a little bit more to, like, how do you, how do people in the, the industries that you have historically worked in um, discover what that in-between space is? What are the tools, the methodologies that you use to understand this in-between
1: Beautiful. It's true that we do actually live in that space because, I mean, to be cynical, there's a lot to be learned and then used in that space. (laughs) I mean, the beauty industry, for example. So I've done countless interviews with women about aging and beauty. And so the tools that we're using when we're looking into that, like, I have a problem in that I'm aging. (laughs) So... I need a solution, but I will sit with women for hours or follow them around their house and, you know, do ethnographies or go shopping with them. Like, we do have a lot of tools and techniques for just being with people as they're experiencing the space between I have a problem and I need the solution, and I don't know what that solution is yet. So listening is the first thing that came to me. Just deep listening and opening up that space for... um, a person to experience and really, like, figure out for themselves what it is they're feeling around the issue. Um, And also embodiment. I realized when I started working on Climate that we were having so many conversations from the head. We were intellectualizing the problem and literally sitting around tables cut off from our bodies because we didn't want to feel what was going on inside us.
3: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of disassociation that happens where we're just not connected to our bodies or our emotional experience of things and then they accumulate Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of clearing is needed. And oftentimes, even if you have the right solution in concept, we collectively can't embody it because we've not dealt with all of the other stuff that we've come to embody.
1: You know, I mean, when I started to look into your background, Ijen, I understood it and and felt aligned, very aligned with you and really interested in the work that you're doing. And a part of me felt ashamed because I have a nanny um, and there's a woman who I left my house this morning and she was cleaning my house. And I felt like, like, how can I be here with you coming from that place? Mm-hmm. Right. There's this thing that's going on inside of me that's like, I'm a good person. And we love these women mm-hmm. in our household. They're a part of our family.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I want to know more about what you're doing. And I'm afraid there's something between us.
3: I do think that that in between space, we haven't sat in it enough. Mm. Because if we had, if we actually sat in it together enough, like you would know probably in the first five minutes of talking to me that there's no shame mm. in that relationship. And in fact, mm. the workers who do the work really take pride in that work and they see it as their livelihood, their contribution, and so there shouldn't be ambivalence. I think that ambivalence comes from the way that we have culturally just so devalued the work, mm. and and there's something that each of us can do about that.
1: Yeah, right? I feel like, I mean, so this is the space, Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. even now, I feel something clearing between us, you know, like even in here, and this is a tiny microcosm yeah. Like what happens here mm-hmm. resonates, radiates out. So I think that's the, the thing I notice is like we feel like, oh, there are these enormous wounds we're carrying and we can't stop to feel because we'll never get the work done. We will never solve the problem if we just sit and feel. But that's not the case. How long did that take?
3: Less than two minutes. Right. It's so beautiful, <laughs> and
1: all of a sudden, I not that I didn't feel. I mean, I felt warmly towards you before, but all of a sudden, I'm on board. That's what has to happen.
3: Yeah. <laughs> See, we solved it.
2: One of the things that we we think a lot about you know, in the building of culture change strategy is this question of what's holding us back. And you're surfacing one of those things, right? That the lack of permission to even admit that there's any level of confusion, anxiety, tension, stress around one's relationships, like with with women who are working in your home, is a barrier, right? And I'm really interested in, in the ways that you and all of the women that you work with have come to identify other barriers and what are some of the strategies or methodologies you might use to unpack and understand those barriers differently using, you know, different forms of research
3: and that? Um, Well, I feel like there's this, this fundamental story which is about, it goes to the heart of how we understand our own worth. But for women, right, we're supposed to take care of our children and take care of everyone. And, and then nothing shifted in that narrative, but we just added on that we are also supposed to succeed in the workforce and, and we're supposed to be able to hold all of that and excel at all of that. So there's a lot bound up in our sense of what our obligations and our responsibilities are as caregivers and an impossible narrative and cultural uh, expectations around it. I also think that matters of care are supposed to be these personal issues that you handle individually behind closed doors. Maybe you talk about them at the kitchen table, but they certainly never become part of a conversation about public policy or the future of the economy or anything of that level of import, right? Until we break out of the siloing and segmenting off of all things care into the realm of the personal... We won't get to the scope of solutions that we actually need, and we won't have the conversations we need to have about how we need to rethink how our economy is organized for the 21st century.
1: I feel like the other thing that's missing sometimes is a vision of where we're headed. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sitting here trying to imagine a future that looks different. Mm -hmm. Because you described where we are now, and I'm— feeling like, oh, God, yes, yes, that is (laughs) how I feel. I have guilt for leaving my daughter when I go on business trips. So I'm thinking, I'm sitting over here, I'm like, what does a family structure look like? Or what do our communities start to look like Mm -hmm. so that we don't have this catch-22 that women are in? Vision is essential.
3: We've got to know where we're heading. Mm -hmm. And for us, we're trying to create a vision for a world where everyone has the support they need to care for their children at every stage of life or or their families, right? And so have the support that you need at every stage of life to be able to care for your families and work and for the workforce that supports that care, child care workers, nannies, elder care workers, home care workers, that every single one of those jobs is a good job. That you can pay the bills, support your family, and every generation can do better than the next. Um, And I think how we support that is that we create kind of a new set of universal expectations. If we all contributed, say, to one universal family care fund, where we all contribute and then we can all benefit to support our ability to pay for child care and elder care and paid family leave when we need it, it feels like... I mean, why can't we have that? You know, and then we could pay workers a living wage who come and help support us when we need it, and then they could pay for their kids to get care and, you know, and we could all take care
0: of each other. If you were sort of imagining how Ijin could burrow more into that in-between space. Yeah. I'm really curious how that could be applied. Well, one question I feel like, Aijin is maybe back up is, like, who do you have curiosity about, like, who you want to reach with this work and what don't you know about them? And then, like, how would you sort of recommend going about doing that? It's a
3: great question. I'm curious about how to open up a space where we can get to the kind of depth that you and I got to, um, but at scale. And I'm also curious about men and caregiving. I think more younger men, millennial men, have just a different starting point of expectation in terms of the caregiving roles that they'll play. And that's an opening and a leverage point.
1: If you were interested in talking to men, I would be interested in that too. It would be, just, like, basic research technique. Like, it it would be interesting to talk to couples. So, because I think your first instinct is to go out and talk to women. But how interesting to bring couples together and talk to them about the balance that they have achieved or haven't achieved in the household. And you probably get a really beautiful um, and honest dialogue there. Um, young couples, millennial couples, and, you know, see if there is a generational difference. But what I think is interesting is the self-care question. I think an exploration of care itself, you've talked about it as a concept, would be really interesting. Like, what is our relationship to care for each other and to ourselves in the culture now?
2: You know, I've I've worked for many years um, with Igen around the question of sort of how to build caring culture and this question that you just threw into the air which is the relationship between our sense of self-care and our sense of the value of care right there's something in that mm-hmm. that's like deep and murky this <laughs> sense of like I can't even figure out how to like take care of myself
1: and nobody's taking care of me Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's subtle. There's a real angst inside or a real pain inside around the feelings that you've just described. And I've been noticing in my own life, after 20 years working in the corporate world, I work like a man. And one of the things that means is that I deny my body constantly. So this is a tiny example, but actually profound when it's happens all day long over days and weeks and years you know to promote a caring culture like we have to become conscious of how we're not caring for ourselves not even in those angry and hurtful ways but in the ways that I am just oblivious to on my day-to-day you know and these kinds of conversations are surfacing like and we can support it. When you can find momentum in the culture and ride that wave rather than trying to start from zero. Like That's just a fundamental marketing 101. It's like, where is there already momentum and how can iGen ride the wave that's already in process and surf that wave?
0: I would just note that for a lot of times with social change movements, When we talk about sort of riding the wave or we talk about listening, we do it in a very sort of transactional sort of way of like (laughs) how many petitions were signed and like what's our retweets been and not really doing that sort of deep listening. I think that's one of the big muscles and skills that we're really interested in trying to figure out how to build as well as to be able to sort of identify and translate what those waves actually mean right? And then to be able to figure out what's the right strategy to do that. And I think that's a really big bridge to be able to build between the social justice and the marketing world that we haven't had a chance to do yet.
2: And and one of the things that I was really struck by is, um, is how we kind of don't recognize social movement leaders as trend spotters of a different sort, right? Mm. Like they spotting the next generation of issues of movements, and I was really moved. I remember early on in in learning about how members of NDWA spotted the trend around the caregiving of elderly loved ones before pretty much anybody did, um, including most people in movement. Right? Yeah.
3: Well. I'll just quickly say that it was actually in 2010 at our membership conference. We have an assembly every couple of years where domestic workers come, up, come together from all over the country, and one of the things that they were saying was that even though they were originally hired as a nanny or a house cleaner, they were being called upon to take care of the aging relatives of their employers maybe Aunt Joan was diagnosed with Alzheimer's or grandma came home with a stroke and they needed assistance. And basically what they said was something's happening in the families and we want training to better support them. And we think it's an opportunity to kind of work with our families to do something big together. And that was the origin of our campaign Caring Across Generations. It led us to start talking to aging advocates and people with disabilities, disability rights organizations, family caregiver associations. I mean, we had never done some of those conversations before, and all of a sudden we realized that we were just kind of scratching the surface of something that everyone was experiencing in one way in a siloed kind of fashion and that if we brought it together something incredibly powerful and majoritarian could emerge
1: that's beautiful i'm just struck by that insight that aha moment Mm -hmm. i can feel it as you describe it and it's like that moment when something was in the dark and then it comes to light it can launch you on a a whole new trajectory on a whole new path it absolutely did yeah Mm Thanks to Aijin Poo
0: and Skylar Brown for starting us on a whole new path into the in between space. So, this conversation was really interesting and frustrating for me because we came into this conversation really thinking that we were going to go pretty quickly into taking some of Aijin's big ideas and visions. And Skylar being really able to say, okay, this is how you do the deep listening with the audiences. Here's step one, here's step two, here's the insights you pull, and that's how you start to craft the strategy. And I was imagining them actually building this strategy together in the room. And in fact, we got something different where it was a space for them to actually stay in a listening mode with each other. And I think that's, That's the kind of work we have to do of actually slowing down, listening, talking with, talking among. If we're going to get into the deep, powerful kind of narrative strategy and culture change work, that's going to transform the society. Generally
2: speaking, movements appeal to the rational minds of people with logical arguments, Debates, op-eds, facts, figures, polling data, right? They also speak to people
0: as if it's sort of, a, as I say, like a one-size-fits-all moo that one person is the same as the next, is the same as the next, is the same as the next. Same tone and belief that people have the same drivers or emotions or beliefs about something. Right.
2: But effective strategy looks at a person or an audience of people as whole, multidimensional, complicated beings and speaks to the specific yearnings and needs
0: of those people. In previous episodes, we learned that science, strategy, and research are fundamental to culture change strategy design, but at the end of the day, none of that can be activated without the storytelling power of artists. So in the next episode, we look at the artistic process with our very own Bridget Antoinette Evans in the hot seat, talking about her work as an artist and a strategist. That's right.
2: Joining me will be television producer and writer Maya Tusi. We'll get into how we create, and share stories that not only resonate with audiences, but also drive social change.
1: Had the story not resonated with you in that way, do you think it would have had the same kind of an impact?
0: We'll find out next time on Wonderland. Wonderland is made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitale produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Rigoberto Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City. Special thanks to Kevin Plessner, Vanessa Fernandez, and Felicia Martinez.
2: Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. There are photos and videos of our conversation with Igen and Skylar, and links to the films and TV shows mentioned in this episode.